0: In our investigation into what led to the Wars of the Roses, we must now turn our attention to King Henry VI himself, because after his long minority, Henry VI really began to rule from the late 1430s onwards. We are often presented with the view that the 15th century was a century of disorder and lawlessness. It wasn't. Serious outbreaks of violence occurred in both the previous and the following centuries, Such events were evidence that some elements of society at least were so outraged by the government's policies that they resorted to violence. Hardly ever did it mean that they wished to overthrow the king. England, in Henry VI's reign, was a relatively peaceful and wealthy kingdom up to about 1450. Like many figures in history, Henry Sixth has become almost a caricature. But there are several enduring, if contradictory, impressions of the man. Some will tell you that he was a simpleton, others that he was a saint, and many others assume he was just mad, whatever that actually means. Either way, this king's personality and policies had a profound impact on the nation's history. As I have already indicated, medieval monarchy depended a great deal on the personality and abilities of the king. So what sort of a man was Henry VI? He was clearly not a martial figure like many kings. He provided a stark and, to the late medieval eye, an unfortunate contrast with his father, Henry V, whose military exploits were almost legendary. The son was not a warlike figure and his unwillingness or inability to play the role of war leader confused and disturbed many of his leading subjects. Those closest to him were churchmen such as his chaplain John Blackman. His chaplain should have known Henry better than anyone and Blackman's description makes him appear most respectful of God in his daily life and in his outlook. If we are to believe Blackman, then the young king was a very pious, chaste and honest man. Perhaps, as Shakespeare put it, fitter for heaven than earth. However, Blackman's account was written many years later to support an application to Rome to make Henry a saint, and thus we might regard it as rather suspect. By contrast, some popular opinions expressed about the king in the 1440s and 50s suggest that he was regarded at the time as a simpleton. Some of these accusations were taken seriously enough to be contested in the courts. But then it was clearly in the interests of Henry's later political opponents to convince people that Henry was so foolish that someone else needed to rule in his stead. After all, if you're trying to unseat a king, then you have to make a very strong case for his inability to rule. Both views then, that he was a saint or an idiot, could therefore be treated as propaganda. But if we dismiss both, then what are we left with? Well, we are left with what he did. And only by considering what he actually did can we make any sort of a judgement about Henry VI. There's no doubt that during the 40s and 50s England faced some serious difficulties, largely centred around the long and ongoing war with France. Mistakes were made and unsuccessful policies were followed. But was any of that Henry's fault? Was it the king or his advisers who messed up. If Henry was more concerned with his own spiritual well-being than matters of state, then we might draw the conclusion that his neglect allowed others to take control. On the other hand, if he did intervene directly in policy and it proved disastrous, then it was not neglect but poor decision-making that characterised Henry's kingship. The leading councillor in Henry's government during much of the 1440s was William de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk. Rightly or wrongly, Suffolk and a handful of other councillors were credited or blamed for what Henry's government did during that time. Historians have tended to regard Henry as merely a puppet who was unable to control influential advisers. Years of deferring to his counsellors during the long minority had apparently made it hard for him to break free from them. It has become clear though that there were times when Henry specifically intervened in policy. An early and telling example of this is his handling of peace negotiations with the French. In 1445 England still held much of France and thus could negotiate to end the war from a position of strength. Suffolk believed that this strong position should make an honourable peace possible, though many of Henry's leading subjects would actually have preferred to press the war effort harder rather than contemplate any sort of peace. Suffolk had a very narrow and tortuous path to follow. Henry, however, had his own agenda and it was completely at odds with both Suffolk and the rest of the ruling classes. He wanted peace because he thought that peace was always the best policy. He believed that he and the French king, Charles the Seventh, both being Christian kings who desired peace, could settle affairs justly between them. No doubt Henry was encouraged though not coerced, by his newly acquired young French wife, Margaret of Anjou. So Henry decided to extend the olive branch to Charles VII by means of a secret letter. The olive branch amounted to the surrender of two of the most important areas held in France by the English, the provinces of Maine and Anjou. The fact that Henry kept the contents of this letter secret for some time tells us that he was by no means a fool. He clearly knew that many of his counsellors would be very hostile indeed to its contents, and they were. Once the King's intentions were revealed, English policy in France descended into a chaotic farce culminating by the early 1450s in abject humiliation. By then, France had gained, one way or another, vast swathes of the territory which England had held only a few years before. Henry was not solely to blame, but his intervention had prompted it. As I said at the very start of all this, the king needed the support of his most powerful subjects to rule effectively. So you could argue that his policy of peace at any price was foolish because it put him out of step with those influential men. Nowadays we might see peace as a laudable aim in itself but at the time it was at best idealistic and at worst foolish. I suppose it depends where you draw the line between idealism and folly. So what was the result of the chaos in France? The result was that by 1450 England appeared to be losing the war. The inevitable conclusion drawn by many folk was that a corrupt and incompetent government led by Suffolk must be to blame. There were the stirrings of unrest in Kent directed against the government, which by February reached the point where Henry ordered that all his household servants should be equipped with bows And then he declared that no man was to carry arms anywhere in London or the South East. This, of course, was nonsense, bred out of panic. But it showed the level of alarm that existed in the government. In July 1450, rebellion broke out in Kent, led by a man called Jack Cade. And it touched a nerve with folk in other areas of the country. For example, in Sussex, Wiltshire and Essex. If we consider that about 2,000 people were later pardoned for their involvement in the revolt, we can see that many more must have participated. King Henry fled north to Kenilworth and Jack Cade's rebels actually forced their way into London. Several key members of Henry's government including the Duke of Suffolk were brutally killed. Yet after it all Henry VI survived. Though no doubt somewhat chastened by the experience, he had been given a warning, and all of his closest advisers had paid with their lives. The question now was, would this gentle, peace-loving king learn from his mistakes?